0: chapter number 4, and we're going to begin this morning a, the, the chapter dealing with saving faith. And um, as it, we begin chapter 14 of the Confession, this particular passage in 2 Corinthians 4 gives us a really a very clear definition of what saving faith looks like uh, as it is being um, practiced. In other words, saving faith is evidenced, in those that have certainly and convincingly received saving faith. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church at Corinth, begins speaking in the first part of this chapter about his own ministry. And then he moves into not just the ministry itself, but the reality of what the ministry has brought to him. Uh, He uses words such as being persecuted. He uses words such as being cast down. And he gives, begins to demonstrate probably in most, the most clear way of any of Paul's letters, maybe except with the exception of a passage in Galatians, about the marks of Jesus Christ, bearing the marks or the scars of being in Christ. So let's look together at 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death worketh in us, but life in you. We, having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken, we also believe, and therefore speak knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. As we arrive at chapter 14 of the Confession, the intent today is simply to give us this typical as we begin a chapter or a paragraph, to give us the subject before us in an overview fashion. Really, paragraph one in today deals with the reality of the origin of our faith, but also the development of it. So where does faith come from and how is our faith developed? Now, really, there's something we need to consider that in order to understand the origin and the development of our faith, we need to understand that we have to be able to rightly divide the Word of God. We have to know what does the Word of God say about faith? What does it say about saving faith? But we also have to understand that if we rightly divide the Word, if we rightly study to show ourselves approved, if we truly take the Bible at its face, then we realize that When we talk about saving faith, we have to consider the thought that faith is a grace. All right? Faith is a grace. Now, as we looked at 2 Corinthians 4 and we read that text, notice again that expression in verse 13. Verse 13 reminds us, he said, "...we having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believe." and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Paul writes about the reality of faith results in speaking about that faith. Belief always speaks. And that's really an important little concept to get. Faith always speaks. It speaks in affliction, it speaks in trial, it speaks when things are going well, but saving faith always speaks, and it's always evidenced. It's evidenced by the reality of what it has done in our life. There are people who, if we read, when we read 2 Corinthians 4, could not relate to what Paul was even talking about. They have no idea what it is to be afflicted. They have no idea what it is to bear in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That sounds like a foreign language to people. How do you, how do we die? How do we die or show the body, in our own body, the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we show that? There are really some deep concepts that Paul is dealing with here in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul in this chapter is Exalting the realities of saving faith. He's exalting the reality that saving faith in the believer that comes through not only the gospel preaching of Jesus Christ the Lord, but it also is demonstrated, saving faith is also demonstrated in our afflictions. We've got to pay very close attention that there is a direct connection in Scripture that Paul draws attention to a number of times, that saving faith is often accompanied with trials and afflictions so that trials and afflictions are not foreign to the receiver of saving faith. As a matter of fact, Paul in in this chapter is pretty much saying, if you are a believer, you are going to experience these afflictions. Notice again, he says in verse eight, we're troubled on every side. Again, I don't want to make too much emotion about this, but how often do you feel troubled on every side? Think about what Paul is saying. Troubled on every side. (laughs) There is no side Paul's not troubled on. But he also says, but we're not distressed. Why is he not distressed? That's due to faith. Trouble is there. Distress is not because of faith. We are perplexed. Are you ever perplexed? If you're perplexed by wondering what's going on in my life, what's going on in my Christian life, but not in despair. You're going to be perplexed, but do not despair. Why? Because of saving faith. Persecuted. Every believer is going to suffer some sort of persecution. You can mark it down. You can be assured of it. But notice what Paul says, but not forsaken. Christ can never forsake his own. He can never let them go, those who are already his. Cast down, but not destroyed. Why? Because of faith. One of the conclusions, and again, this is not a full exposition of this chapter. We went through 2 Corinthians, it's been a couple of years ago now, but when we went through that, we also saw the overriding theme about how we grow in faith and we grow in grace. And sometimes the greatest growth occurs in affliction and occurs in trial. Oftentimes we make the mistake and pray, God, keep me from affliction, keep me from trial. Paul's saying the exact opposite. It is in the trial and in the affliction is where your faith truly begins to grow and it begins to flourish and it begins to blossom. Now, nobody likes affliction. I mean, I don't know many people that say, Lord, bring as much affliction and trial as you can. And that's not what Paul was saying. Paul's not saying you go and pray to be a martyr or you go and pray, say, Lord, pour as much bad things on me as you can pour. But what he is saying is as a result of your faith in Jesus Christ, these things are guaranteed. Don't look at the affliction and the trial as something that's meant to destroy you, but rather it's meant to increase and strengthen your faith and to magnify God's grace. That's what Paul is talking about when he deals with this. Now again, what affliction does is confirms the possession of saving faith. Now afflictions are not the only thing that confirm that we are in possession of saving faith. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, and that His merits and His righteousness is the only means of your acceptance with a holy God, you have repented of your sins and you believe fully in Christ alone, you are in possession of saving faith. But if that faith, if it says, I have faith, but there is no evidence of it, there is no growing of that faith, there's no uh, development of that faith, there's something that's wrong with what's going on. Now again, let's, now let's look, at, look at the paragraph of paragraph 1. Of the confession that deals with this initial thought, and it's also going to give us a little bit of insight as to what are these other means that confirm to us the possession of saving faith. Paragraph one says, The grace of faith, whereby, notice the emphasis here, the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls. "...is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened." Now, you will notice that the, the, very, the very first footnote or the number that associates with a verse is 2 Corinthians 4.13, which connects with the first phrase of that paragraph. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe that the saving of the, their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And the footnote is 2 Corinthians 4.13, which is the verse that we uh, just read We having the same spirit of faith according as it is written. So what we're seeing here this morning is not only is there this confirmation of our faith that is evidenced in our trials and our afflictions, but also what is referred to as ordinary means of grace. Now, sometimes when people are confronted with that thought for the first time, it's like, this sounds... Uh, a little mystical to me. What what do you mean these ordinary means of grace? Well, the, the confession makes mention of that. These ordinary means are the administration of baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God. It is increased and strengthened. What does the confession mean? It means that our faith is increased even in these, what appear to be ordinances that we say, let's observe these ordinances until Christ comes. That's baptism in the Lord's Supper, right? But it's more than just an observance. Our even our very baptism, it doesn't save us, but it's part of the ordinary means of grace that strengthens us. We, we're not washed of our sins when we go down in the baptismal waters. But when we rise up, there is this strengthening of our faith. We observe the Lord's Supper the, sun, uh, the previous Sunday. And when we observe that together, if we're not careful, we just, it becomes a routine. And it becomes, okay, the last Sunday of the month, uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to go through this, this, this ceremonial thing. But do you realize that there is actually, that's one of the ordinary means of grace that's meant to strengthen your faith. It's not meant to just be an object lesson, although it is. But if you negate that just down to this is just an object lesson, you're missing the point that it actually should be strengthening your faith. Why do you think Paul in, in 2 Corinthians actually, before they partake of the Lord's Supper, he gives the, the, the uh, command, examine yourselves to be sure that you are even in the faith before you ever partake of it. But when we partake, we are actually strengthened and our faith is increased. Now, he's not talking about our saving faith is increased. But what he is talking about is our faith to believe, our faith to go on, is found in this development. Now, as way of a summary, let me give you just a summary of chapter 14, paragraph 1. And or the entire chapter of what we're going to deal with, with chapter 14. This chapter teaches that saving faith does not originate in us. It is a gift of God's grace given to the elect by the Holy Spirit. The usual means through which we receive this gift is through hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. Our faith is strengthened as we apply other means of grace, including baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, even our fellowship. It is through God-given faith that believers trust God for salvation, and then with every other aspect of their lives. True saving faith, and I think this is important for a lot of us to hear, true saving faith may at times be weak. Or it may be strong. True saving faith lasts even though the believer may suffer setbacks and lapses in faith. That saving faith lasts, sets it apart from the faith possessed by non-believers and those who seem to believe for a time, but who later fall away. In other words, even being in possession of saving faith doesn't mean that you're not going to have times where you have a lapse in your faith. Or you suffer a setback. Now, how does that tie back to trials and afflictions? Do you realize that the number one reason that our faith experiences setbacks and lapses is in trials and in afflictions? That's where they most often show up. That's where we most often have problems when we see, I know I'm in possession of saving faith, but right now my faith is just not where it's supposed to be. I'm struggling to see God's hand in all of this. I'm struggling to see where is God's hand in this, it's, it's the, the age-old question, how could God allow something so bad to happen? Yet, do you know how many bad things happened to Paul? Do you know how many bad things happened to the church at Corinth? When, when Paul's talking about, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was not talking about symbolic marks. He was talking about actual marks where he had been beaten, he had been whipped, he had been stoned, he'd been left for dead. He was not saying that, hey, there's just some mystical hypothetical bearing of the marks. He was talking about real marks. But he said, even in persecution, even in persecution, I am never, ever, ever forsaken. You're not going to hear any better news than that. Even though I am perplexed, I am not in despair. Even though I am troubled on every side, I am not distressed. Why? Because I am in the possession of saving faith, and that saving faith reminds me that I am firmly and securely and eternally in the hand of God, and nothing and no man can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. This saving faith is a real possession. This is not something that we just simply say, I think I have it. It's actually strengthened by the very means in which we call worship. Folks, I want you to think about something this morning. And maybe this is a side note, and I won't, I won't spend too much time here. But do you realize that the things that we attempt to do at this church, as far as order of worship, it's not meant to just say we're organized. The reading of Scripture is meant to strengthen and increase your faith. The singing of doctrinally correct hymns is meant to strengthen and increase your faith. The preaching of the Word of God, the actual preaching of the Word of God, not messages that are meant to tickle our ears, but messages that are meant to challenge us and convict us, is a means of strengthening our faith. The men that stand up in this pulpit or at a stand or wherever, they, they're not here to try to impress, they're trying to show us these very means of grace to increase our faith so that we leave here today strengthened in Christ. It would be a sad thing if you left a church service only feeling emotionally high, but not having your faith increased and strengthened. You know why? Because emotion is one of the great deceivers. It's one of the great deceivers because emotion will convince us that if I don't feel something when I walk out the door today, either the message failed, the church failed, or God failed. Well, I can tell you for sure, God never fails. And even if the preacher is not good... The ordinary means of grace will still strengthen your faith. That's why we don't place an emphasis on your eloquence and how good you can speak or how well you can orate. That's not what Paul was known for. But yet, this saving faith, it has an origin where? The origin is by the work of the Spirit. I cannot, no matter how great of an order of service we have, no matter how biblically sound it is. I cannot do a work of saving faith in you. Only the Spirit of God can do that. I can plead with you. I can beg you to run to Christ as quickly as you can run. But I cannot create saving faith. No preacher has ever created saving faith in another individual, ever. All a preacher is, is a proclaimer of the gospel of what Jesus Christ has already done. He's not dependent upon the preacher. Paul knew, God's not dependent upon me. But Paul also says there's evidence of this saving faith in your life. This saving faith is seen even in afflictions, even in trials. It's strengthened and increased in the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayers, and other ordinary means. Somebody mentioned to me uh, not long ago they said, the services at your church, this church, not my church, this church, are so simple. It's intentional. That's not because we, we don't have anything to do. Those are ordinary means of grace. It's a biblical pattern. So, as we think about this, let's think about this on a couple different levels again, just on a, 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 an overview here. So we know that the origin is the phrase I gave us, faith is a grace. Why? What do I mean by that, faith is a grace? That simply means that faith is a work of Christ and of the Spirit. It's not a work of man. You cannot program it. Churches are trying to program spirituality. Churches are trying to program some form to make you worship. And yet the Bible's filled with the ordinary means of grace. If prayer doesn't bring you to worship, you have to ask yourself the question, what's, what's gone wrong? Why, what, why is prayer, why, did I, why am I not brought to a, a feeling of, of really connectedness with, with God? The problem's not with God. The problem is with us. And again, Paul doesn't lay out in Scripture about how prayer has to look sound. I mean, we've even said on Wednesday nights about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus was not teaching that you have to say these exact words, or He was saying you have to do this exact thing. But He was showing us a point that there is a communion that is there, a very real communion when you, as a believer, commune with your Heavenly Father. And if that doesn't strengthen you and increase your faith, What will? But faith is a grace. It's the work of Christ and of the Spirit. Now remember, I mentioned to you two weeks ago that chapter 14 begins really the section that deals with an, the activity of man. And I want you to listen carefully because we don't want this to get to a place where we decide, oh, wait a minute, this is all done by free will. It's absolutely the opposite. Remember, when we're made willing to believe, the response of belief is actually evidenced and that grace and, and faith is increased and is strengthened. I did not come to saving faith apart from the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. No believer who claims belief did it on their own. And they didn't do it by God doing His part and then waiting for me to do my part. And we met in the middle so where we could say, Jesus Christ and I are 50-50 in this relationship. You are not 50 50. You are 100% all of God, or you're none at all. Now, did you repent and believe personally? Yes, you did. But where did that faith to believe, to repent, come from? It came from the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit, not because you got religious. Not because one day you put your foot on the floor, got out of bed and said, today I think I'll seek God. That's not the way it happened. That's why faith is a grace. How, does, how is saving faith normally wrought? How does it happen? What's the converting means? It's normally by the preaching of the Word. Under That's what's expected. Where the Word of God is preached... That's the normal, ordinary means that God uses to convert the soul. I won't, I won't dip my toes too deeply into this controversial area. But a lot of people speak of conversion that had nothing to do with the word of God. They speak of a saving faith, yet there's no, there's no place where the, the preaching of the word of God even had any part That saving faith is ordinarily the work that's ordained by God. Now, preaching is not just a man standing up and giving us a few facts. It's not just a person standing up and saying, here's a few things I want you to remember. Actual biblical preaching throughout Scripture is actually a converting means. It's the means in which God opens the eyes through the Spirit to their need of faith, And their need of salvation, their need of reconciliation, their need of regeneration, all of those things, it comes as a result of the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word. So remember it this way, the preaching of or the ministry of the word is the work of God, but it's practiced by man, right? So here's what happens. It's God doing the work But man is the one that's doing it. In other words, he's he's preaching it, but he's not converting. He's not saving. You know, one of the things that irks me is when a man says, this many people were saved under my ministry. That bugs me to the highest heights of heaven. Now, I realize God uses men. He has used men throughout history. You hear me quote preachers of old all the time. But I will tell you this. Paul is not saying that it's my ministry that saved or converted those souls. It's actually the work of the Spirit of God that converted their souls. Which gives me great hope today because any man who stands up and with the power of the Spirit preaches the Word of God, no matter how he speaks, whether it's clear, whether he stumbles over his words, God still can convert the soul. I remember very early, just a personal try. I remember very early when I, when I first knew God called me to preach, I was so, so concerned about how I came across to people. I was so concerned about, is this polished? Is this, does this rhyme? Is this alliterated? Is this going to make sense that I can organize these thoughts? And it drove me crazy. Why? Because I was so worried about people hearing me and seeing me instead of pointing them to God. That's what preachers are supposed to do. That's what saving faith is. Saving faith is not about placing your faith in that preacher. It's not about placing your faith in that church. It's about placing your faith fully and totally and completely in Jesus Christ and his finished work. You place your faith in a man. What are you going to do when that man leaves? What are you going to do when that man dies? Your faith should never be in a man. Now, Paul would make statements like, you can follow me as I follow Christ. But he never said, if you'll believe in me, you will be saved. No, he said, it's in Christ alone. So it's the work of God. It's the ministry of the word that is the converting means in which God uses. So we understand faith is a grace. Number one, it is the work of Christ and the Spirit. Number two, that grace or saving faith is ordinarily wrought by preaching. That's the converting means. And thirdly, it is increased by the use of means. Ordinary means of grace, just remember them as things that confirm. All right? That's baptism. That's the Lord's Supper. That's prayer. Those things, fellowship, these are things that increase our faith. You know, one of the the great things we often miss, and again, just being a little, little transparent with you this morning, one of the things we miss is that you know when believers fellowship together, do you realize that that is intended to increase our faith? It's intended to strengthen us? Think about how much time we spend in a week with people who being around them, again, this is not a negative, I'm just giving us the truth, our faith is not strengthened by. As a matter of fact, sometimes we spend too much time and our faith sometimes weakens because the people we're maybe dealing with don't have any faith at all. You realize we come together, there's this fellowship of the believer. There's the fellowship that we have this morning that really, folks, if you stand back and you really look, there is a beautiful picture of what Christianity is supposed to be, even in a church like ours. Why? Because you have this fellowship of the believer. Not every church can claim fellowship of the believer, because not every church member, not every church is actually in Christ. It's a fellowship that's not based upon human things, like, do we like one another? Do we get along with them? You know, one of the things that should never happen in a church, for example, is a clique. That this group of people, this group of people, we are all the brethren. And because we're all brethren, there ought to be a fellowship that no matter who I speak to today, if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ and we speak to each other, that fellowship, we're increasing and strengthening each other. It's the iron sharpens iron. That's not just a men's ministry motto, by the way. I mean, that's how we look at it. Iron sharpens iron. That's that's a really manly thing. That is, that's a picture of the fellowship of the believer, so there is this really, this great picture. I want to draw our attention, go way back at your confession quickly, we'll bring this to a close, but look at chapter 22. This is, I don't, I don't, I don't even know how many months, years we are till we get to chapter 22, but do you know in your confession there's an entire chapter that is, contains eight paragraphs just on religious worship and the Sabbath day. But I want to draw your attention to chapter twenty-two, verse five, or paragraph five, and let's let's read that together. Here's here's that ordinary means of grace: the reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's supper are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to Him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. Even our worship, true biblical worship, should increase and strengthen your faith. That's far different than making you feel better. Now again, I don't know what's going to make you feel any more better than knowing you are safe and secure eternally in the hand of God. But what I can't stand before you today is say, you know what? If you just have a little more faith, all of your afflictions are going to go away. All your trials are going to go away. All of your problems are going to go away. Folks, that's why people are running. They're running like rats on a sinking ship to the church that says, if you come over here and you listen to this, all your problems are going to go away. That's the great lie of Satan. There is no gospel message, there's no biblical story, there's no biblical narrative that says, if you go do this, the problems get left behind. They're usually multiplied. But why are we not cast down? Why are we not in despair? Why are we not in distress? Because we know we're in Christ. And if I know I'm in Christ today, I have the greatest... I'm in possession of the greatest knowledge I could ever be in possession of. That not even death can separate me from the love of Christ. Never are we promised that this will be easy. But we also see that other means are fat, other means, fasting. If you've ever been on a fast, we've not, we've not spoken a lot about that yet, but if you've ever fasted, uh, that is not just something that you do and like Jesus pointed out the Pharisees and say, why do they make their faces all disfigured? They want you to know that they're fasting, but fasting will actually increase and strengthen your faith. And then simply days of thanksgiving. Days that you give yourself over to remind yourself of who God is. So that's just an overview this morning of where we're going with this. Next week, we'll get a little bit more into the, uh, the nuts and the bolts of the, the paragraph itself, and we'll deal with some more of those verses. But this morning, let's just really think about that, that phrase, that faith is a grace, and that all that we have, all that we are, uh, is in uh, Christ Jesus, and it's a work of Christ. And of the Spirit uh, is why I can say this morning uh, that I certainly have uh, saving faith. Are there any questions, first of all, that you folks have? And then I'm going to throw a question out uh, to you this morning. Anybody have a question they want to ask? Now, some things we we just scratched the surface today. So we may be getting ready to cover something that you'll ask, but we'll try to cover it uh, the best we can today. Anybody have a question this morning? Right. Um it's kind of one